the future of grace. Uh-huh. So if you know anything about us, um, we have a very small ministry called Grace World. Grace and, World. Yeah, Party on. Pretty much. Pretty much. Dan wrote a book not too long ago uh, called Extreme Turbo Mega Grace. And we just love God and how he works in and through uh, grace the, and to have lots of things there. to talk about. There, yeah. now we can hear you. So we actually have a podcast, a weekly podcast, and we just sit and chat about things that are going on in our lives. Now you don't get to be here. I'll take over. I guess so. <laughs> so, yes, our, okay, our podcast. We yeah, we're at grace.world is where you can go visit us. Right. So tonight, this this feels like yeah, a podcast to us, except, you know, it's we like in an, person. You guys can it's ask questions. Scary. Normally, we don't. We get to sit there, and we don't have any response from anybody, except maybe sometime in the week we might hear from some friends. Um, so it'll be kind of good to have some people talk right, right. back here to us and interrupt a bunch. So, uh, so in our in there. our week of uh, weeks of, of praying and asking God, what do you what do you want us to talk about? He's like, you kind of our grace world. Maybe you should talk about grace. So we that's, resisted. That's where we are, <laughs> no. and we just um, have a few things on our mind to talk about the future of grace. Yeah. So, so hit it. One of the things we're going to do is we're going to kind of split this mostly in half, but uh, I'm going to go back through the history of grace and talk about, as we look through, I'm going to give you about five minutes and see if I can blast through the entire history of the world in five minutes. And what we want, it might take 10. And what we want to see is a lot of changes occurred a lot of different things happened, and somehow the grace of God still prevailed. Somehow people are still able, under all sorts of different circumstances, all sorts of different institutions, all sorts of different circumstances, God is still present, and people are able to somehow get to God. So here's my quick, how fast can I talk about history? Ready? So we'd go back about to the year, depending on how you want to reconcile it, about 4,000 B.C. or 5,500 B.C., depending on which chronology you want to use. And that was creation. We've all talked about that one a lot in here. The initial state was God created Adam and Eve, and they hung out. That was the relationship, was we just spend time with you. We know you. We hang out with you. Um, but then they kind of decided to take their own little path for a while. And, uh, as a result, God said, and it sounds like punishment, they were kicked out of the garden, but God basically said, something has happened in the universe with sin. Something has changed in humanity. Something changed on earth. There's a lot of debates on what happened, you know, and I think there's a lot of different opinions, you know, did the number of dimensions were available to us changed did something happen in our heart whatever but somehow there was a fundamental shift and god said i'm not going to have you continue to eat from the knowledge of good and evil or sorry the other tree that was the one they did do i'm not going to have you eat from the tree of life in that state so he's going to allow the death to come eventually now, that also set up, we had a prophecy in there, you know, about 
that uh, the seed of the woman would step on the heel of Satan, it set up something that we're going to see several thousand years later when Christ comes. So all the time there's this awaiting that somehow there will be a reconciliation. That's the first piece of grace. Uh, you go back into the flood even. The flood was probably somewhere around... Can I stop you for a second? What? Hit it. Am I going too slow? No, no. I was going to say, we didn't really define grace, and, I, and I'm and i sure everybody that was could define no. grace. Oh, you didn't do it no, on purpose? No, go ahead. No. No, I... I think we've talked... You know, it's one of those... If how I was do to we say, define grace? Yeah, if we were to talk, you know, there's all those little short, cutesy definitions like not getting what you deserve and all those, which don't really communicate the weight of grace. Which is, I mean, at the simplest sense, grace comes from the word charis, which means gift. And there's something that God does regularly with us where he gives gifts. And Graham Cook likes to call them like kisses from the Father or kisses from God. There are things where he is constantly bringing in and giving to us new things. And I'd call those graces. Is that... and. So what I want to try to say is, what does that look like as we go through history? And I'm not going to try to cover that, everyone. Just say, stuff was happening and change is happening, because that's where we're going to get to some stuff with Becky. Is that? Yeah, I think the only thing I would add to that is yeah. that the great living and moving in the grace of God means that he responds to us regardless of how we respond to him. So he is constantly giving love, acceptance, guidance, wisdom, all of those things because of him, not because of us. So Jason said, it, um, would that be separate from the goodness of God or the, uh, I, I, no, I, not necessarily separate from, uh, it's definitely, uh, from used the in the Bible, you yeah. know, they talk about grace in the Bible a whole lot. So I feel like that is a more right. of a like an an umbrella kind of term. Yeah. But you know, and that's like Deanna's saying. There's lots of different um, manifestations, maybe of grace or gifts, whatever. But it's him, him moving and flowing in our life as we allow him and in, in, in not necessarily in respond. He does always respond to us when we reach out for him, but, but he's always pouring goodness in us regardless of our, um, yay or nay. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. And which now that's what the history is going to, where do we see all right. of these things happening? And I think also I want to just say rooted in grace is there's a real relationship. I think this is one of the things that Joyland does really well. And I think, I, I know when I look at people here and we've talked and stuff, this is a, I'm going to say it's a mature church that understands the love of God. And one of the biggest hindrances to grace is when we have a false understanding of the character and nature of God and his goodness. So that's related to what you said. When we see that God is good, we can walk in that grace in the joy, in that relationship. And typically the things that are barriers to that relationships are our own imaginations, our own wrong understandings, and the things that we put up as barriers um, really in our own doing, I guess. So, but, you know, as we go through history, you go through a whole lot of things. You know, Cain kills Abel, and you wonder... 
Well, Abel had a better offering to God that somehow was better in faith because he gave the best of his flocks. Uh, Cain gave some vegetables that were... Apparently, they weren't the best of his flock. So um, it, it was not acceptable. But in spite of that, that he kills his brother... God comes up to him afterward and still talks to him and has a relationship. And Cain is fearing for his life for the retribution, and God says, I'll protect you. And even the murderer, God's like, I'll take care of you, regardless. And so there's a constant picture of God coming in, and usually what it is is we have a fault. We, we grew up, because right humanity tends to be we're judgmental, we're harsh, we think everybody's mad at us or whatever, and we always have all these bad things. And we project that on to God that this is what God is like. And that tends to distance us from it. You know, the next thing we see in the Bible is Abraham. God just picks this guy up out of nowhere, out of Ur of the Chaldees, and says, hey... This is a pagan worshiping guy, and God's like, hey, I want you to go to another land. I'll be your God, and I have a promise for you. And his promise was, and it's a covenant relationship, it was unconditional and unilateral, which means Abraham had no responsibility in that covenant. So God basically promised him descendants, land, all the area. In fact, if you think it's just Israel, it actually goes clear out. If you look at the original dimensions, goes out to cover entirely out to Iraq is actually the land of promise to Abraham. So it goes out to the Tigris and the Euphrates, I think it is. But he has kids, you know. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob becomes Israel. You got the 12 tribes of Israel. They live abundantly even in Egypt, but then something happens. They get a new Pharaoh comes in that doesn't know them. And the Pharaoh enslaves them. And then they go into years of slavery. Then finally, God calls them up. He raises up Moses and says, you know, let my people go. So what it is, it's a gift from God. He makes a covenant with them. So there's a covenant between Israel and God. Now, this was a conditional covenant. So Abraham had an unconditional government covenant that they owned the land. But Israel's Living in the land was conditional based on their performance. Their blessings were based on their performance. So it was actually 613 laws which ran an entire country, which to me, I'm like, that's actually, I wish we could get our country down to 613 laws. That would, <laughs> I think we're up to like 613 books of laws is about what the Federal Register is. So, but God provided for these people. He took them to a land, provided them, gave them... Uh, he actually said, I'm just going to give you a land that's flowing with milk and honey, that it has all these things. I'm just going to give it to you. You have houses that you didn't build, and I'm going to give it to you. And he does all of these things. And so that's... Actually, that was what... So if you look at the time, Abraham was probably around the year 1920 B.C. The Exodus was probably... We'll just call that around 2000. Exodus was probably around 1,500. We'll give you round numbers. Then you eventually get into the kingly line, and I think David was the one person we see in 
not the one person, but he was somebody who really understood the grace of God in the law. Because he understood the law, but he understood or had a real relationship through that. Um, you see the time that he went and uh, he was hungry and they went to the temple and ate the bread that was consecrated. And he's like, hey, we're hungry. <laughs> and he recognized that, you know, man has value before God and so forth. And even David, through all the mistakes he made, I mean, the guy had somebody bumped off. He cheated on his wife. He did all these things. And yet he somehow saw who God was and received the grace of God through all that he did. And so the next guy that we see probably coming up, actually it's interesting to note that David was anointed exactly a thousand years before Jesus was anointed. So there's that. And then Abraham's covenant was a thousand years before that. So we're going to go into these interesting millenniums here. So now let's go look at the year zero-ish. So Jesus is born, actually he's born in about 3 BC. Does everybody get that mess up your head that Jesus is born in 3 BC? <laughs> born before. <laughs> Three years before Christ. So apparently Pope Julian, when he figured out the calendar, they did it wrong and they got it off by three years. So, or Pope Gregory, I forget which one it was. It was, it, it was, they just messed up what year it was. <laughs> So when they picked what the year zero was, they were wrong. So anyway, let's jump real fast. Let's kind of get this moving here, right? So what happens, and here's where I think a lot of change happens. Jesus comes, and he wasn't according to what was expected. Because if you look at a lot of the rabbinical writings of the time, there was some confusion about the Messiah. In fact, some people actually said maybe there's two Messiahs because it appears as though there's this suffering servant and then it appears that he's a victorious king. And so everybody votes for right victorious king is who you vote for. I want the victorious king to come in here and we're under the oppression of the Romans and we need that guy to kick the Romans out. But he didn't come as to what was expected. He came to bring a solution to the need that they had, which is that from thousands of years earlier in the garden, which is a restoration of who we are, are before God, a complete restoration of our identity. So then we have a lot of difficulty as we grow in the church for years and years and years. The year 70 was our next big change. What happened is you can think about it. In Jerusalem, you have three groups of people. You have the Jews that receive Christ as the Messiah. You have the Jews that, re that rejected Christ as the Messiah. And you have Gentiles who start saying, hey, we want to follow this Jesus guy too. And oddly enough, there's conflict between those three groups. And so everything kind of starts to split off from there to where we have probably more Messianic people. And then I think a lot of the... the, um, the uh, non-Jewish church starts to become more predominant at that point. And that grows for about 300 years under extreme persecution under the Roman Empire. But then in the year 323, you have uh, Constantine decides he puts out what's called the um, Edict of Toleration, where Christianity is now acceptable. Shortly thereafter, the church and the Roman Empire merge. 
And so that's when we get what's called the Holy Roman Empire. So it looked like it was a good thing at the time because all the persecution ended. Eventually Christianity became the official religion and it spread dramatically through the world. However, it also became very institutional. And so how do we see the grace in that time? In those time periods, that's when the growth of the monastics and some of the early monastic fathers were. That's when there was many people who said, we need to go find out and live directly with God rather than in the institution. But yet, there's many people that grow and got something within the institution. So, we need to zip along here, don't we? Whew. So, a whole lot of stuff happened in the church. We'll get moving right through there. I'm sure where my glasses so I can actually read. <laughs> yeah, we went through a whole lot of councils and so forth. Eventually, around 607, Boniface III became the first pope. Now, I know if you go to the Catholic Church, they'll say they got a pope all the way back, but Boniface was actually the first guy that declared himself as pope and said he had full authority as the pope over the entire church. So what happened then is you started to set in place over the next few hundred years where the church was situated primarily in Constantinople or Istanbul, as we call it. What do we call it today? Is it in? It's Istanbul today. And what happened is that was the original power center under Constantine. And now it was starting to drift towards Rome. And so by the time you get to, oh, 1054, we hit what's called the Great Schism. And that's basically when the Greek Orthodox Church, this is right at the next millennium, and the Catholic Church split. Now it's important to realize when we say the Catholic Church, what does Catholic mean? It means universal. It was the church, okay? And has been up until that, I mean, it continues to be at some point. The church is all of us. But the head of the two churches split. And so now we had the Orthodox was over in Constantinople. The Roman Empire was over in Rome. And then that was predominant for the next several centuries. We went through all sorts of struggles. I'm going to skip through most of those. Uh, you know, there's things like celibacy of the priesthood. That happened in 1070. Prayer beads were adopted in 1090. In 1154, the Inquisition begins. Um, 1254, they established the sale of indulgence. 1215 was transubstantiation. In 1229, reading the Bible was forbidden to laymen. So, 1439, they came up with the doctrine of purgatory. And in 1492, the Jews were outlawed in Spain and Columbus sailed for America. Interestingly, Columbus, his real name was Cohen or Cologne. And he was Jewish and left the day before the Jews all had to convert or die. So, that's when he left Spain. So, interesting, fun tidbit. Um, then the big next split comes in 1517. Who knows what that is? That's when Luther nailed his... 
99 or 5, 95 theses. And so we basically had another split where you had the Protestants splitting off the Catholics and then there was all sorts of turmoil and there was a counter-reformation, all those kind of things. Uh, 1530, all lay pastors teaching publicly are to be killed. That was one of the rules. And then by 16, though, there were 40 translations of the Bible from Latin. So now the word was really spreading. And so through also the ability to print with the with uh, Gutenberg making movable type, uh, you started to see it spreading dramatically. You know, in all these things as we go, we can look and say, were there good things and there are bad things? Then we start, as you go into the 17, 1800s, we get a huge rise of denominations between, you know, Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and, and so forth. And then by the time 1900 is, what, 1910? When was Azusa Street? 1910, 19, somewhere around there. So then you had the charismatic thing, then Jesus movement in the 70s. And now we hit 2000. And so we've had all these things and turmoils and it's easy to go through history and go, here's the good guys, here's the bad guys. You know, like Catholics were bad and the Protestants fixed it, you know? And it's like, well, <laughs> there were issues. You know, you can go look at during the Catholic period, there was wonderful, amazing people like Catherine of Aragon, uh, what's? Julian of Norwich. There was all the mystics were active. There's incredible people were doing amazing things. So God was active even in a time where we would say, that's a train wreck. That was a mess. This is like, I don't even know how people live back then with some of the rules and laws. And even as we go through my childhood or my youth and my parents' youth, there was times where legalism was so great. I mean, my dad got divorced in 1940. Nine, I think it was, and the pastor of his church said, God will never use you again. You're done. And that's what the church was like in a lot of churches in America in the 1940s and 50s. Fortunately, my parents stuck with God in spite of the church, and they went through grace places, and we learned grace. We learned about God and what it was like, and I think there's a there's an aspect that we have to learn, which is, and I think I, I appreciate Riley over there and his talk last week of the struggles now. There's things that are happening in the world that we can go, oh my gosh, this is so terrible and the world's you know, going to hell in a handcart and everything's bad. But, or we can say, what does God have for us in the future? Because there is good things. There's always been great things that God has been doing throughout all of history. There's things that we don't know about because usually we don't get the history. You know, we have things like, um, often we'll say the Presbyterians were not very charismatic. Well, it ends up that the Scotch worthies in the early Reformation, they were raising people from the dead. They were doing massive healings and stuff. It's just a lot of that stuff starts to disappear from history as people don't want to think about it or talk about it. But amazing things have been happening through all of history. So I know Becky wants to maybe kind of jump off into what does the future hold? We've gone through all these millennium, millennia, what does the next millennium look like? Yeah, I... Uh, what, what, is it, what does the future hold? 
recently just meditating on lots of things. We have four kids. They're in their late 20s, early 30s. Uh, I, I get a lot of my information just by watching their lives and hearing what they're dealing with. Um, and and I just kind of it just came to me the other day. You know, we're in a brand new millennium. We're not just in a new decade. We're not just in a new century. We're in a new millennium. And I think millenniums mean something to God because He talks about the thousand-year reign that happens in Revelation. And however you interpret that, there's that number, millennium. So I was thinking, gosh, we're just like barely in this new millennium, the 2000s. And there was a lot of hubbub, you know, when it slipped over to the year 2000. And I remember lots of great prayer and great talk about revivals and all the preparing for the year 2000. And here we're 23 years into it. And I started thinking, okay. You know, maybe we feel like we've got our footing, and yet so many things are changing, especially in the structure of the church. So many things are changing. So that made me start to think, okay, we're we're newbies in the 2000s. What do we think the year 3000? What will people in the year 3000 know and experience that we don't know a thousand years from now? assuming that we'll be here, which some people don't think we will be, but let's just pretend for a minute. There are things in the year 2000 that the people in the year 1000, there's no way they could have imagined what is going, what happened in the year 2000 or in the 2000s. How was God moving us? And I, I just kind of got this picture of, we're the foundation of the 2000s. Those of us who are living now lived in the change over, over from the 1000s to the 2000s. We're the ones kind of laying the foundation or the groundwork of whatever God is doing and wants to do in this new millennium. What will grace look like as things change? Because guess what? They always change. Persecution always comes. People don't understand God accurately. Things get hard, like what you just read about when anybody that was a layman was supposed to be killed, a layman pastor, that's us. You know, we would have been gone. Um, wow, they lived through that. Somehow they lived through that, and the grace of God continued to move on the earth. His power, his love, his purposes all continue to move on the earth. What thinking about this does is gives me hope. Because to be honest, it's hard to find hope in the next generation, I think. And then I do things like go to coffee with Teresa last week, and she has her little darling with her, her little almost two-year-old granddaughter. And I just watched her, and I watched that little baby girl be curious, be trusting, be full of life, be open. And I thought, that's hope right there. That generation, she's in that, even that next generation. And she's not coming with a dark spirit. She's a loved little girl, and she's, there's hope there. God is in that. God is in that little person. 
And there is hope. There's hope in my children. There are hope. There's hope. There's hope because of God. So where do we look for it? That's kind of my quest. Like, where are you, God? Where are you now in our culture where we can somehow, like, see past the weeds of the junk when we talk to people and some of the filters that they have or the expectations that they have or the confused identities that they might have? Where can we kind of get past that part to see through the heart, which is what God does all the time? Man looks on the, <clears throat> excuse me, outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. He goes and looks right to the heart of issue. And, and over and over and over again in the Bible, when he's talking to somebody, he, Jesus demonstrated this so amazingly. He'd go to the heart of the person and touch them right where their identity was. In fact, this was kind of cool. I'm going to bring this in. A um, little side note here, but Tuesday night we were talking about hearing the voice of God. And so... Um, the discussion started with the uh, right at Genesis three, where they heard Adam and Eve heard the voice of God, and we got to talking about the question when God says to them, "Where are you?" And I got what I felt like was a new revelation in that, and it's just my interpretation. So there was there was whatever twelve of us in the room, and then we all had our own uh, interpretations of it. But um, that Tuesday night, I heard. God say, where are you to Adam and Eve? As in, you've lost yourselves. Where are you? You've lost your essence. You've lost your goodness. You've lost your identity. And I'm not asking you because I need to know. I'm bringing to the surface your need so that you can see it. Where are you? And I see that through all the stories in the Bible and how Jesus do it. And even... I watch miraculously by the grace of God him do that with my own relationship with my children. I've had some beautiful conversations, especially with my daughters. I have two daughters, one even this week, where she's woke and she has big questions and big confusions and she's making decisions through that filter. But she invited me into a place in her life and her profession, she asked me for input on a decision that she was trying to make. And man, I was so grateful for one. I mean, she's, she's 32 years old. She doesn't have to ask me. She's a grown woman. I'm grateful for that opportunity and cautious in my own spirit to go, I have to see the heart of her issue and affirm that and give her wisdom based on what she's really trying to find, not on some of the perspectives that she's trying to wade through on herself. And we navigated through that conversation, and she got through the situation that she was asking for brilliantly. And she managed to get an outcome that could have gone a different way, but it went a beautiful way with an open conversation with her employer and all the ramifications of that. God was in that. God was in that, but did we use God language? Mm -mm. I didn't talk about God because she's not really open to that right now. She doesn't want to hear me tell her about God. I'm her mom. We're her parents. She knows what we think about God. She doesn't need me to talk to her about God. She needs me to see her. Where are you, Jessica? Where is where are you and what you're really, what your heart need, what your felt need really is? And that inspires me to look at 
some of the bigger things and the things that are going on in our culture and the changes that are happening in our church. Man, if you want to get a little scared, I guess, not that I think we should get scared, but I've been listening to some different podcasts. The church is changing. I mean, it's crazy. Like, the structure of church is really imploding in all kinds of places. But that doesn't mean that people aren't hungry for community, authenticity, the truth, compassion. Like, I feel like there's a hunger even more for that than maybe in some of our generations or, be, you know. Yeah, we're looking else. at that that podcast we were listening to where it was actually three pastors and one of all three of them were lament, I don't know, lamenting is not the word. They were changing where their focuses were towards much more individual relationships rather than the church service part. And they're like, the trend of worship time, TED Talk, prayer is diminishing. That structure. And it doesn't mean, and, and there is a time for teaching, and I'm a teacher. I love to teach. I'll teach all day. But there's some differences that we may need to have in approaches. And in fact, as you were talking about uh, some of the other changes, I realize if I think back 20, 30 years, what we do in the church was I look at you from the outside. I see what you behave like. And I'm concerned about what you behave like. I see what you dress like, what you act like, and those are the things that we're interested in. I mean, we'll say it's Jesus and we care about that and stuff, but we're quick to try to correct the behaviors. That's our, that's our primary thing, is if we could fix the behaviors, you must be walking with Jesus better. Because that's what walking with Jesus is, is better behavior. Now, am I saying have bad behavior? No. Obviously, better behavior is better. <laughs> but it is not the metric of our relationship with God. And I think what this generation, what we're seeing now is people are like, I need to be known and I need to be loved for who I am. And I think actually every generation is needed that we just, we right. just culturally, we could get away with it because that was our culture. And, and I, I want to piggyback on some things that Terry talked about last week with value and worth. And I feel like a lot of young people these days are feeling more like we are valuable, we are worth knowing, and we're going to be vulnerable enough to let it all out and see who really is, the proof is in the pudding, who really is willing to say, yeah, God loves you in the midst of your path or growth or despondency or whatever. It's not all good, yeah. to be honest. Um, somebody in, in, in my sphere of, of influence um, this week lost her son to suicide. It's, it's hard. It's a battle. And, and we have to have the grace of God. They, this family is a beautiful example of the grace of God. It's not on them at all. There's still the devil trying to come in and mess things up. 
just like you did. Steal, kill, and destroy. Adam and Eve, with Adam and Eve. Yeah. And yet God still comes and says, I have grace, I have grace, I have grace. I will continue to give. I will continue to love. I will continue to pursue each generation because I think he has purpose for each generation. Surely he has some purpose for our kids and their kids and this whole new millennium. I feel like there's a picture where I'm getting to where what God is saying to me is you can look at some people and in here is them. But there's like this obvious issue here and this amazingly bad issue here. And and God's like, step over them and just go to them. And we're like, but that's such an obvious bad issue that they needed in God's like, step over it and go find them. And that's, I think, what real leadership from God is, is to say, what because we want to fix everything. You know, we want people to behave better, be fixed, have your life all fixed up, you know, quit doing drugs, be a happy person, whatever, all these things. And God's like, that may not be the order that I want to address things in. And that may not be the order that they need for you to love them. And you getting them to change may not be the expression of love that I want to give. And it may be they never change. And you still get to love them. And you could love them for who they are, regardless of what an idiot they are. (laughs) So, you know. By the way, if you have questions, I'm holding the magic microphone. So you just have to put it over there. You can just come over and grab it, come up if you have something. But um, no, no, Go go put your microphone over there. Or here, I will. You keep talking. Because look, we actually have time for questions. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I hope this has stimulated some thoughts about how do we, as people, fundamentally communicate Christ in the world today? Because, I mean, we have so many entrenched things we do. We There's so much bad stuff happening. There's so many dumb ideas and yet, <laughs> finish your thought. And yet, there's grace. So, so Becky, you mentioned that you felt like the church was imploding, and I'm curious to understand whether you think it's a structural implosion or if it's kind of um, I don't want to say moral, the the just the process. How? What is your thought on that type of implosion, and what do you think will may come out of it? Great question. Um, and of course, these are just my thoughts, right? Education or research behind this. This is just from what I'm experiencing from the people in my world. I feel like some of the structure of it is becoming irrelevant, as far as uh, people don't sit and listen to lectures anymore. We don't do fireside chats anymore. People don't just sit and listen to be inspired or motivated to to a whole like 35, 45 minute presentation. They're way more interactive. They want interaction. They want questions. This is 
one of the reasons we love this church, is that there's so much interaction. Because you sit and listen to somebody for longer than 20 minutes, things start rolling around in your head. And you get questions, and you want to talk, and you want to have discussions. So what I'm seeing is, instead of people going to churches on Sundays, they're more act, more interested in going to a Bible study on a different night where they can actually have discussion. So the ramifications of that, I'm curious right now, just to, just, okay, God, what are you doing with that? Because obviously we're coming into a lot of new revelation about the intimacy of God, the relationship between God and Jesus, you know, the Father and Jesus, and what relationship looks. It seems to me that that's happening in the culture. People want relationship more than they want preaching. Do you think there's a change in the mindset of leadership and structure from that purview where, I mean, even here we have elders um, as part of the structure of how the church is, in a sense, run. But like you said, you know, people listen and things start rolling around. And that's been, I think, part of my biggest problem is a pastor in a traditional church in the sense, you know, last 20 years gets up and talks and has this big lecture and then you want to ask questions, but they're not necessarily there to be approachable or even have the discussion of, you know, what about this or other things like that. Do you see that happening as well? Do I see that that will change yeah. or... Uh, yeah, I think it's already changing. I think the fact that people will listen to a podcast or engage with people online. So I think the communication piece, the, the, the world communication piece of it is also part of this whole change because we do have access, so much more access to find anybody that we want to find information with and discuss with them than we used to. So I, I, I think that yeah, like even pastors. So this podcast we were listening to just recently, all three of them are pastors of pastors. And pastors themselves are preachers or ministers also are aware of the island under themselves and how they need interaction with people. And this isn't a new thing, but I feel like it's, um, it's more acceptable to say, hey, I need community too. And so community seems to me higher on the priority list than information. I would love to hear your thoughts on that, though, Dave, at some point. Sometimes there's old stuff that uh, gets renewed and rediscovered. And I don't know the name of the original author of this phrase, but there's an expression preach the gospel in season and out of season, and when necessary, use words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, the, um, I have a, a gentleman, a person, that um, I have befriended, and I have made, prof God, through me, has made profound changes in his life. And it's quite an honor to be in that place. And what I don't do is force him to say a prayer. 
because I don't believe that necessarily brings them any closer to God. That's just how I see it. And um, I've got a lot of people around me that occasionally will say, well, so with this guy, has he said the prayer yet? And I don't care. Because in my understanding of God, he has a relationship with God that's growing. And fortunately, I'm around him to be able to model some of that. And he's soaking it up. And it's not only affecting him now, it's starting to affect his kids. And I didn't plan that. That's awesome. So the ability to communicate, I think, might be different now. And people trust actions more than just words. I think there's a lot of distrust right now based on words. And when we watch what somebody does, that's more important to us. And so I'm fortunate in the sense that um, I've been able to have an internal change sufficiently that my actions can reflect that. It's called bearing fruit. That's so cool. Yeah. I want to hear what Greg has to say, and then I forgot to talk about the liturgy thing. So help me go back to that. Okay. Go ahead, Greg. Uh-huh. Hi, you guys are really reminding me a lot of Romans 2.4. It says, the loving kindness of God causes man to repent. So the loving kindness comes first and then comes repentance. Dan was talking about the order we kind of get backwards. We want, we need them to modify, we need to modify something because we need, we need them to fit in our template of who they should be and then they'll have an interaction with Jesus. The Bible says it's the other way around. I'm in a, a group of people right now, uh, some friends, and I'm watching, um, I'm watching someone get treated like a checklist of compliance. And this person is not in deep relationship with Christ or anything like that. And it's heartbreaking because these are some very zealous people from a local organization that are treating him, and they, they believe they're going to lead him to Jesus and they will not. And I'm watching it go horribly wrong because they don't love that person. It's just that simple. They do not love that person. And they've got Bible verses. They've got all kinds of stuff. They, they, they're they loaded with all kinds of tools. And they're treating him like a compliance checklist. And what they don't understand is they're hating him in the name of Jesus. And it's horrible. And uh, so what you're saying is so important because what I believe... I'm seeing is everybody has a Jesus-shaped hole in their heart where they want to be loved by Christ. They don't know that necessarily. And whenever I watch someone who doesn't have an intimate relationship with Jesus get treated like a compliance checklist, it's heartbreaking. And that quote was from Blaise Pascal. Um, Yeah, the God-shaped hole. Yeah, I think that's actually literally the opposite of grace, which is what we're trying to communicate is you are loved regardless of your behavior. You have a relationship regardless of your behavior. Um, I go back to think about the church stuff. You know, we talk about church imploding and whatever. There's an aspect when you look historically, you know, I remember all these different uh, polls. You know, if you go back and the numbers are all wrong, but just pick the proportionality, you know, is that the greatest generation of the World War II ones were 75% Christian and the boomers were 50% Christian and then Gen X was like 20% and so forth. And so they proudly say, see, we were more Christian. And it's like, no, America had 
a culture of Christianity, and we failed. Each of those generations failed to transmit the faith and love of Christ to the following generation so that each generation was less and less related to God until the Christian culture has been kind of eradicated. It's like from Europe, it's gone. You know, other than like if you go to France, people will call themselves Catholics because traditionally France is a Catholic country, but nobody goes to church in France. You know, maybe 4% or something or 2%, but they'll still call themselves Catholic just because that's who we are. You know, we're French, we're Catholic. And I think America, to a certain degree, I mean, there's probably more believers. I don't want to knock that. But we kind of can get overly prideful and say each generation is getting worse. And to me, the heart in my heart is, why are we not raising up a generation that knows that love and is not expanding? Why is that not expanding? And that's something we have to look into. What have we failed to communicate about who God fundamentally is because people don't like it and they're leaving. Great job. Thank you, guys. Um, the thing that always bothers me and it's been bothering me for years now is, and you touched on a little bit, Riley touched on it last week, reaching out to the youth. I don't know what the answer is but we're failing them in some regard. They have no desire, really spiritual desire, to know more of him. We all see that in our families, and we wonder, you know, I can be back at Christmas, and I can pray over the meal. They know that Meg and I are, you know, Christians. There is no questions about spiritual spirituality whatsoever. You know, I, and, and that bothers me a lot because we've got generations coming up now where you hope and there's a desire to know more of Christ. Thank God for the parents that bring kids to church and pique their interest, you know, in Sunday school or whatever they hear when they're hearing some worship music. But do you folks have any insight in that? Well, I think this is where my question is coming from. What are you doing, God? Because I don't believe, I, I, I said this on our podcast last week, so if you listen, sorry, I'm going to repeat myself. <clears throat> I feel like my kids' generation has heard a lot of messages that say they're godless, and I feel like they're fulfilling that potential. But I don't really believe they're godless. I believe that God is doing something in their generation. It's just doesn't look like what it looks like for us. Mm -hmm. And so because I know that God is interested in compassion, I'm going to look for those places in my children's lives yeah. and point that out and pull that out to them. And every once in a while, if I feel like there's an opportunity to say, you know, look what God's doing in your life and not beat them over the head with it, I think they'll be open to it. They know we pray for them. They, um, when one of my kiddos was going through a particularly hard time in his teens, um, we had a minister come, and I went and asked for prayer for him afterwards, and I, I said, any advice? And he said, don't quit speaking the truth to them. And 
it took me a while to figure out what the truth is, yeah. because to me, the truth is Jesus is the answer. Well, mm-hmm. I know that, and that's the truth, right. but do they have ears to hear? Maybe not. And it, and it really comes back to relationship. Right. We have to be in relationship with each other, and they have to know that I want to hear what they have to say, too. Like, yeah. especially now that they're adult kids, it, it's, it, it is a two-way street. And I do tell them, hey, you inspire me. I told my daughter this week, your courage inspires me. They yeah. need to know that those things that we're not necessarily calling God, we're not using those verbiages, it is still true. It is still the truth of them living their full potential. Mm-hmm. That gives me some hope. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I I know it's relationship, you know, and, and we have relationship with them, but it's just strange that there's just yeah. no interest, you know. I, yeah. I think that's a hard, that's a hard one because I think to me one of the biggest areas I've had that's of value is to speak words prophetically. And I don't mean using biblical words. I yeah. means I see this in you and this is where I see you heading and I can leave out every spiritual or Jesus-y sounding word, and that impact and the truth of there is a destiny, there is a place you're going, and so forth. Because I can call, they know who I am, they know I know Jesus, they know that's the truth, they know, you know, so it's like, I don't have to use those words, and I think the biggest thing for me that's hard, or that I've had to learn, is to make sure I'm not using Jesus-y words just because I have to cram some Jesus-y stuff in there, but to rather to say just what's the truth, what's good, what's good and right. Yeah. Because I don't have to have Jesus' name in every sentence right. to otherwise it doesn't count. You know, is sometimes what right. it feels like is if I don't say Jesus in here somehow it won't count. If yeah. I don't have a full gospel presentation they won't make it. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's, yeah. And I had, and it's painful. It's painful, painful, painful sometimes in the process to watch. Yeah, it is. Especially in your own family. Yeah. It's torture sometimes. Yeah. yeah I, I was sharing with Becky before, and part of the testimony we didn't share is that uh, we have a son that committed suicide. Oh, you know, he was in the homosexual lifestyle, really got out of spirituality, he was born again, but uh, he ended up killing himself, you know. And even when Riley mentioned it, that was a possibility with young people, that they're so desperate that they would turn to suicide is really troubling, you know, mm-hmm. because Jesus is for them, is there for them too, you know. Yeah, so. you know what, I, I was thinking about that very thing on the way, or this afternoon, where... Some things are anathema to us as a church. Let's say homosexuality, stuff like that. And I'm going to say something that sounds really hard or difficult or weird as a church thing. You may have to let somebody be gay and call themselves a Christian and live their entire life gay and never have them not be gay and still love them as a Christian with Christ in them and not feel like you have to de-gay them in order, and it may be, you know, will their life be less good? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. But what if their life is less good, but they're still loved by me? 
Right. And that's, I, it kind of blew my mind thinking about it today, but it's like we want everybody fixed in all areas. And Jesus didn't ever call us to fix anybody, ever. Mm-hmm. He said, love them. Yeah. And again, it's painful to watch. Yeah. It is real painful. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. I, I want to leave on a lighter note because yesterday was Becky's birthday. So we're going to sing happy birthday to oh. Becky. Happy birthday, birthday to you. you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Becky. Happy birthday to you. And many more. Yes. That's some quality singing out there. Nobody was off. Yeah, I came up here sort of in response to the direction of where it was going um, with asking, like, what is God doing now? I loved what you guys brought up because it just kind of, okay, like, all right, I, like I can, you know, go along right with that where basically I just want to affirm a lot of what you said um, and the fact that I don't necessarily think that the right approach to looking at the individual person or the, the church or the situation or the state in the world is to come from a stance of it's just broken. Um, I actually I feel like because what you call out and what you are looking for, even if you're not necess- you don't necessarily want to look for it, but it's but to, to say that it's broken means that's what you're going to see. And instead, like what I've learned to start to realize is that like looking at the in- like like let's bring it down to the individual. It's not to say that they are broken, because that's the whole problem. That's why they have left the church. They're sick and tired of hearing that. They, that has, like, it's a self-fulfilled prophecy where they feel completely worthless, completely broken. There's nothing right with them. And instead, it's like, well, what are they really? They are already from heaven. They are already have him in them. And so, therefore, it's like realizing that, and you can't call something that has him in it broken. It has all its other stuff on the outside of it, but that's not really them. And to ever even acknowledge the other stuff just further does what they're already doing to themselves is that they are saying that who they are is all the other stuff, and they have lost sight of who they really are, and they need help with that. And so even like going back to the church, um, the state that it's in right now, I don't think it's broken. I think it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It It's hard for me because I look back at the way it has been and the damage that I took on myself in that process, and I could judge that. But then I also can say, well, you know what, Lord, maybe it was through that that you needed me to realize some stuff to then realize how perfect I already am and come into alignment with that and the other stuff has fallen off. And yes, it doesn't matter. I still make those mistakes, but I'm not that. That is not my identity. Um, so then in regards to like, yeah, what's going on with the church, it's like, no, I think it's, it's a very strategic, whatever it is that the Lord is doing in it, and the new thing that he's doing in it now, and even like in the the individuals that have left the church, um, hearing this struggle that a lot of us have with the fact that it seems like they don't want to hear anything spiritual, 
I've actually been finding it super fascinating, and I don't know if it's just the people that I've been around now or what I'm looking for, so therefore it's what I'm finding, but I'm finding that people are actually extremely spiritually open, but they don't want the same, they don't want it portrayed the same way. And so when you either use their language or you come up with just realizing, like sometimes you can do it in conversations with people where it doesn't have to have the certain Christian lingo, but you can find like a middle ground because you may not understand their language either, but you guys can both find that middle ground and your spirits will click and it's like you suddenly realize you agree on all these things. You just have different names for it. And that has always been so fascinating to me. Like I have recently had a lot of interesting um, conversations with people that they wouldn't call themselves new age, but that would be what I would have put on them before. And it is so amazing. The conversations I can have with those people, like where they are and what they know about the nature of God is incredible. And it's just, it's just beautiful. And so I'm just, as I like approach different people, whether they are somebody who just is so angry at God or they've had, you know, a history with the church and it's really hurt them and they want to hear nothing about it like or somebody who is on a spiritual journey but it's under a different name it's it's just fascinating when you can come to that middle ground and start to speak to their true identity within them and things i mean it's amazing and there is not a single person that doesn't have that so it's yeah in pain is oftentimes what will cause it to be so buried deep within themselves that they don't even know what their identity is yet because they're only relating to to the outside stuff. But yeah, it's, I just I just want to affirm too because I just heard you guys sing a lot of that. So. No, my turn. Well said, sister. <laughs> Absolutely well said. I 100% agree. Um, I think it, the reason we did the whole history and whatever is things are changing. And I am totally on board like with you like okay this is uncomfortable this is not my paradigm this is how i've done the last 50 years of church but things are changing and can i be open to how things are changing and learn some new verbiage and hear people that don't want to talk the way that i talk and still be able to engage and relate one-on-one with them absolutely agree yeah, you brought up a point that I was hoping to make, which is, that was great. I appreciate it. Um, we've been through several churches in our life, and all of them had good things, and all of them had terrible things, and various bad teachings, and some abuses and stuff. But I would say every place we went, we had good friends, good community. We grew with people and got a lot out of it, you know. So there's always problems. But we have to find, like I've even told my kids, ones that were, they're in uh, Oklahoma, and they're having a hard time finding a really good grace church. It's like sometimes you may have to go to a church that's not so good, but just find some friends you can have that you can hang out with. And you know, forget about the church experience so much as just grow with a community of people, however you've got to do that. And that's... But I think, yeah, we always need to be thankful and recognizing that, and that's part of the history, is recognizing even under the weirdest administrations and harsh times, 
God was still doing great and amazing things. Even during the times of the Inquisition, things were happening around the world. You know, I don't know what all they were, but, you know, he's always moving and he's always working, and we need to be sensitive to that. Um, I think another thing you're talking about... Okay, and uh, I remember when I was in high school, and this is part of how we've got to learn to relate and love people. I remember that was when they first mainstreamed people with handicaps in school, physical and other handicaps, and they just started busing them in. And I remember seeing one guy who kind of had a hard time walking and some other issues. The stoners accepted him. So guess what? He became a stoner because the stoner's like, cool, come on, smoke pot with us, you know? And it's that, who accepted him? Yeah. The stoners, you know? And we're quick to not accept people mm-hmm. um, because we have such a hard time. And I guess maybe that's part of my prayer is that I stop seeing the outsides of people and seeing them, not the external whatever <laughs> so <laughs> thanks yeah I really enjoyed this uh, this talk this topic tonight because I think I, I would I would argue the religious structure is imploding but the church is not um, because I would say that many of us... That's today, probably a better way to say it. Many of us today actually haven't had very many experiences with the true church because the church has described the history. You know, look at all that. What you have is it's kind of like a uh, like the classic uh, refrigerator box cardboard robot. <laughs> you know, it's real clunky, and that's starting to tear away, which is, a, is I think, a good thing. Um, because underneath that there are still the beautiful living organs of Christ. And I think I'm excited at this opportunity of seeing where even as the structures we know and some of us love and grew up in are starting to to fall away or come under fire, um, I think that's because Christ is actually disassembling these false structures so he can build those living stones into the true temple um, that he designed, that he really wanted. And something for us to to think about the other word that just keeps coming up over and over again tonight is relationships relationships and most of that always had to happen either before or after the traditional church service so yeah. I, I i don't know I'm, I'm really excited about this time because i think we finally have a generation here who isn't going to live quiet lives of desperation they're going to actually talk about it you look at the the statistics you said of the church state or the religious, each generation is going down according to the common polls yeah. and all that. At the same time, our life expectancy is going up because we're actually talking about problems and identifying things. And so I'm I'm excited at a generation that'll cry out and actually mm-hmm. has a chance for for healing and something authentic. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm I'm hopeful at all this. So. want to thank the Hewitts for uh, bringing forth their wisdom tonight. Any last words? Any last words? Uh, no. <laughs> actually, be relational. You know, I think that's I, actually that's kind of the summary is 
you know, all the stuff Larry's been talking about for the last year probably can be summarized in relate. You know, we got the unity, perichoresis, ACAD, uh, oneness, all the various things about um, understanding mercy and judgment, and all these things. All of those things come back to we're in this for relationship. God brought us into a relationship. He brought the other people to join in this relationship. And all the other stuff is junk. <laughs> we need to focus on the relationship because that's who we're designed to be. Amen. So. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Uh, Dave, could you help take the chairs off? Um, Burning Man gave me a, a great lesson and teaching on how that seeing God in people when you come to the realization, when you come to the revelation, knowing that God is in them, then you can know he's working in their life. Period. Over there, I'm sorry, Dave. He's working in their life. You may not see it. You may not feel it. You may, it may not be present, but he's, doing, he's there. He's working in their life constantly. And all you have to do is think of your own life and seeing Jesus working in your life when you had no thought about him whatsoever. Things were happening. Things were t going on. So, Tim, when you're, with your, when you're with your family, just your presence alone is bringing forth the presence of uh, a mighty presence of God, and there's things going on in their life that they're dealing with, that they're struggling with. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.